Chris will deal with it focuses on bridging the gap between where you're at now and where you'd like to be. We'll explore wisdom and techniques from a wide variety of domains and industries and apply them to your unique challenges. I love developing frameworks, processes, and storytelling metaphors that enable personal and business growth. Through actionable next steps, we'll build momentum and confidence. My goal is to help you clear roadblocks, do more with what you have, and realize the potential of yourself and your team. So throw your challenges my way, and Chris will deal with it. Welcome to the first CDWI workshop. Workshops are live working sessions where I dive deep into a specific problem or focus area alongside a special guest. Today's workshop will be relevant for anyone interested in publishing and marketing creative works, self-publishing, art copyrights, licensing and commissioning, board card and role-playing games, product production and logistics, or retail and distribution. I'm really excited to introduce you to Lauren Belanco, owner of Studio Belanco and co-founder, owner of the 20-Sided Store in Brooklyn, New York City. Today's workshop is going to kick off with Lauren's question. I've built the fictional world of Mira over many projects stretching beyond the past decade. I bootstrap many experiences in this world, all of which require learning as I go. But I struggle with where to start with all my plans to expand the world. Being on the retailer side of things, I have a lot of experience with what a game needs to have in order to sell, but I do not have any experience with working with publishers, distributors, printers, or manufacturers. Here with Lauren Belanco, owner of the 20 Sided Store. So um, I've known Lauren for a long time. Her and uh, Luis Chato have owned 20 Sided Store for over 11 years now. Yeah. Um, I was very happy to be one of the first part of the community they started building back at the start. And they're still going strong. They're always expanding. But Lauren's been someone who's very, been very supportive of my work, both with the board games and with the writing, and has some just really great content that I wanted to bring to the show. So Lauren, you know, introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. My name is Lauren Belanco. And yes, Luis and I own the 20-sided store in Brooklyn. You can come and visit us anytime. We are, we are, yeah, we're holding, we're holding it strong here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, you know, so having a good time running games, creating games, creating a community to bring people together, even in these really tough times right now. So you know, it's been it's been a roller coaster ride during the pandemic, but things are going strong, and we're we're happy to be here. So yeah, I feel like every time I'd visited over the years, it just got bigger and bigger. Even after I moved out of the city, I'd come back, and there's a whole another wing or who's yeah, I know. I'm always rearranging, and like you know, we've been. Um, it's funny because during the pandemic, so we had a huge gameplay space in the back of the store. I'm sure you remember. Oh, yeah. And during the pandemic, we couldn't do in-person events. So we moved everything virtual and we're running games online. And then I sort of just spread out all the retail so that it was more social distancing and room for people to move around. And so just kind of put all displays in the back where the tables were for the for the in-store play. And everybody, you know was like, whoa, your store's so big, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and I would just be like, we crammed so much in such a tight spot, but now I'm like, now we spread everything out. And then over the two years, you know, we just filled that space. So now it's, now it's like, we can't, it's so hard. It's like, you know, we want to bring in-person events back, but I'm like, how do I <laughs> scale back now? And 
you know, take over that space. I'm going to have to get another space to run events. <laughs> so. but I think it's important. I, I wanted to give people a little more context before we get into, into your questions for the show. But yes. you had that nice blend of the community building. You also had the retail space. And you've been a retailer in, in, the, in the gaming space for almost a decade now. Both Magic the Gathering, uh, role-playing <laughs> games like Dungeons & Dragons. Um, uh, you had a lot of figures. So you had a lot of uh, tabletop gaming. D&D miniatures. We yeah. do mini painting yeah, exactly. and paint belongs and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so sorry. We have, the other big, one. we have a big mini section. Yeah. No, yeah. people. But you have these different uh, we, di- different facets, but you really understand the retailer side of the equation. I think it's really important to know just how strong of a community that you built. You know, you've always been very supportive of the low. There's a really actually a good scene for New York City uh, board game designers, which I was a part of early on, which is a story for maybe another podcast about how it really yeah. helped inform the writing side. But even then, because you had the, the storytelling elements of role-playing games, you were also really supportive of local authors and artists. And being an yeah. artist that kind of covers a lot of different types of art, which I know you'll get, you'll get into in some of your questions, but it really comes back to that community that you've built over the years. The fact is, you know, you, you have this wide community of people that may even not live in New York City anymore, like myself, but still want to keep up and, and try to support the store whenever possible. Um, I know early on when we had our, our board game Epigo, you, you, know, you, were, you were very helpful in, in selling it helping me with our pitch on how to sell it. Um, you just had a great perspective on it. And you've always been so you know, free with advice and helping people and creators out. And being on this podcast early on is, another, again, another thank you. Because there have been a few touch points that, again, throughout, I've just been the beneficiary. But you do that for so many different people. So it's nice to kind of get back a bit here today. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that I just, I have a lot of ideas and I have a lot of you know, when I have something that I learn, I just want everybody to, you know, know it too. So I love, um, yeah, the the game designer spotlights have always been one of my favorite events because I think people really do love to not only, you know, a lot, a lot of people aspire to make their own games and not everybody has the means to do it. And I think a lot of people who love games are very, whether they want to make their own game or not, they're very interested in how that works. And they love to meet the designers and support local game designers. And I think now more than ever, you know, we're, we're really moving more towards getting a lot of indie games in, in the store and we have shipping so we can ship things now all over the United States. So we are widening our network, um, which is also very exciting. So local can, is now, is now more than New York, which is super fun, you know? (laughs) That's important. Important to know for myself. I know. Now we have to say like indie instead of local. You know, I guess local is like, can you actually be in the store for a spotlight? But now we've got all these other opportunities for these kind of podcasts and other ways to spotlight people. So I, I'm honored to be here. Honestly, yeah. uh, it means a lot, and that's that's where you know it's a great story too because you started small. You got the you got the small. I remember that it was almost like a hallway at first. Right? Yeah, it was a hallway. Yeah. <laughs> And, but you were holding big magic events. You made it work, yeah. and you felt, you listened to what people were, how they were interacting with the store, getting feedback, what products are selling, which are not. You grew, you had that organic growth. The point now where you're distributing, you're, you're indie, not just local. Um, you you were, you were able to adapt through the pandemic for a retailer in Williamsburg. That's saying something, right? Especially in the in the board game space, because a lot of yeah. that, especially for role playing games too, which I know is part of what you're gonna what we're gonna talk about today. That's a very, very hard trick to pull off, but being more diverse and being more open and being helpful for so many years gave you a lot of opportunities to grow. We'll touch on that theme, I think, quite a bit through here, this, through this discussion. And again, I, I have to thank you also because that community extended beyond just the games, right? 
I remember um, I had a local a local group of writers. We wanted to kind of we did a short story I think through the twenty sided website. Yeah, uh, which I think the first, I guess the first short story ever technically published. And we had a nice event at the end where I brought in other local writers. And we had this great writing event. It was the first time I really read to a wider audience, and it was very impactful. Like it gave me a confidence boost at a really critical time when I was considering like, hey, do I really want to do this or not? Yeah, but I mean, we still it's still up. I have the yeah. links. I don't know oh, if yeah. it's like it's, directly linked. It's still up I mean, there. <laughs> it's so it's buried, you know, because it's on a blog. But the links are there if you want to share the links with the audience for that story. It's yeah. a really great short story, and we yeah we released it in a couple different chapters, right? Like over over several weeks, I think is how we did it. Yeah, but you made it, you just made it, the whole event so comfortable. Um, made everybody feel welcome. It just was awesome. That everyone had a yeah. great time, but. It was just, again, getting those boosts of confidence. I know I know that I'm just one of the many people you've helped. And I want to use that as kind of a dovetail talk for you to maybe talk about World of Mira and, and why you want to come on the podcast and talk about you yeah. know, what you need help dealing with. Yeah, I feel like, you know, from being on the retail floor and having, um, you know, having that kind of perspective where I can see what people are interested in and what they want to buy, I, I know what packaging design should look like. And I know what information needs to be on the box to help a retailer sell a game. Um, but yeah, with the world of Mirror, I've been developing this whole world and we were using it during um, our, so it was basically a way for me to have unique Dungeons and Dragons games. So I wanted to create a setting in a world that, so our Dungeons and Dragons events that we were running at the 20-sided store would be unique to any other place. You couldn't, you couldn't play those games anywhere. So it sort of started off as a little micro setting just set in, in the city of Black Bottom before we even kind of built out the rest of the globe, you know. Yep. And then during the pandemic, we were doing regular world-building episodes on Twitch. And so we started to just start to build out all of the contents and the weather and, you know, all these other things. And I had a, for a long time... I had an idea for what I call a reverie deck, but it's it's a tarot deck. And it, originally it was going to be based off of a moon cycle. But then when we started building out the world of Mira, I was like, well, it should be set in Mira. And Mira has three moons and two suns. So we need to base it off of that cycle. So I started creating this whole new game system, essentially. And then I worked with a friend of mine who is like a really great... Um, business consultant for creatives and he just has this a way of helping you kind of see bigger yeah. <laughs> is the best way that I can so what turned out to me just like a tarot deck that I made with like magic card images is like a little template when I was playing D&D &D <laughs> and I would yeah. use in my games now is you know we're working with um, artists and I've been writing a lot and creating systems and there's games within the game and you know it's going to have all these different purposes and hopefully will be published as the first lore book to the world of Mira for people that want to play in Mira as a role-playing game but I would also love Mira to expand to be bigger than that and be its own intellectual property to license out for TV, films, books, whatever I've got. I dream big, okay? Yeah, that's important. <laughs> so, so a lot of the things, you know, that I find where I need, you know, help with and where I thought, you know, your expertise as being somebody who published a game that we sold in our store yep. is, you know, where do you get your games printed and how do you source printers and and find, you know, there was a little bit of, I don't know, just there's a lot, there's a lot of questions that I have, you know, especially about, legalities of stuff and licensing stuff yeah. and you know even with the 20-sided store like the more we get popular and and people are 
interested in what we're doing and they see the success that we're having, like everybody wants to name their things 20 sided. And it's like, but we kind of have that name, you know, so like, how do I protect my, you know, without getting into like, you know, obviously like copywriting and stuff like that. But like, I know with games, there's more to it. And with, you know, licensing the art, the art from, or buying the art out outright. Right. I know there's so many options. And for me, this whole world is I'm learning it as I go. And I know I've been picking up a little bit here and there. And obviously I have you know, game designers that I can touch upon, but also during the pandemic, a lot of places have gone under and I don't really want to work with printing houses and, you know, overseas where, you know, I'd love to work locally, but then things get really expensive, you know, so, so many concerns. (laughs) Well, and and so I I live on the day job, right? I am in part, I'm part of a distributor manufacturer of mechanical parts. I'm seeing just the most insane supply chain sourcing environment of all time. Right. It's crazy. I mean, we're seeing it from the retail business. We're like, we just can't get staple Mm -hmm. games that, you know, our business kind of relies on, you know, it's like, oh, the people that (laughs) print the games can't even get the paper. Right, right. I know. And and yeah, so I'm going to try to keep this more on the creative side of things, obviously, with the the board games and also um, all my experience in in publishing uh, books and writing the books. The lot to bite off, so we might bounce around a little bit. I know. There's so much. It's like, I want to write adventures and I want to publish a tarot deck and I want to create courses for people. I know I'm all over the place. So honing me in and getting me, you know, to try to think strategically is also a big conversation we can have here. Yeah, no, but you're starting. Prioritizing. You started with the right stuff. You started with the content, right? You have a really Mm -hmm. strong world. It's well developed. You've been testing it over a long period of time. You have a really good sense of what it's like to be in that world, to play games in that world. And you've also got a pre-built audience who's been part of this world for... Yeah, since 2018, I realized, you know, like parts of it, right? Like it's it's changed a lot over the years. And I think we weren't really officially calling it Mira until 2019. You know, 2018 was definitely sort of still kind of keeping things a little, just yeah. some neutral and kind of loose, but already sort of restructuring just the way we even write adventures to make them easier for our game masters to run, for our guides to run in the store and that sort of thing too. So it's important here that there's going to be constraints whenever you talk about manufacturing or products, right? You're, you're, creating something that exists at a certain period of time. It's got a, you know, a, a UPC code or, or an ISBN number. It's there. It's somewhat immalleable. But those constraints can also drive some of the creativity. Actually encapsulate, it's, it's putting the, as you put it, some guideposts in a place that this is what the product's going to be. So everything kind of has to, you don't want to necessarily jam everything into that, especially in a world where you could have a tarot deck and a board game and a role-playing role game book. Plus, a, a you, you're talking about maybe having a large-scale interactive experience or a LARP. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. everything's going to fit. doing those already, yeah. Yeah, but not <laughs> so, everything's going to fit. I want to do them even bigger. It's not everything's going to fit into that box, but... You know, there are going to be certain limitations you're going to have with a physical product, right? It's going to be the size of your pages. It's going to be the size of the right. box that you can fit in. There's all maybe a cost-benefit analysis. If I go with this smaller package, it's not going to look as impressive, but it's going to be shippable. Yeah, um, totally. Oh, shipping, like, does it fit in the envelope for standard rate shipping? I mean, I, like, I can't even tell you how many companies we work with where I'm like, just keep a standard size, you know? like. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was one of the people early on. <laughs> <laughs> so so but listen you're going to learn lessons along the way yeah, and so we'll talk a little bit about some of those cost benefit trade-offs for sure yeah. but i mean you have lots of ideas on what to do with the world but i think they're all sort of competing with a what work on me next 
Mm-hmm. I think the tarot mm-hmm. deck is definitely the one that sounds like it's the furthest along in terms of a known entity. Yeah, um, in my mind, I feel like that's probably going to be the first official published product in the world of Mira. I've done like a couple publishing things as I go on the website and trying to still figure out exactly if that's going to live. Like right now, it's just on my personal Studio Blanco website, Blanco.com for anybody who wants to go check it out. I'm also debating, like, do I merge it with 20-sided store? But then that website has got so much stuff going on on it already. Do I just kind of create an its own website at some point and its own company at some point, you know, like where, what order do I do things in? <laughs> yeah, I think it's important. That's a good point, actually. You want to make sure that, so the legal structure of the company who owns the intellectual property is important, but it can be totally separate from the physical, here's what, here are the websites, right? You got 15 websites that go all tied to one company. You may want to have as part of the ownership agreement for the store, you know, we do have this IP, but you can have a different breakdown of ownership for that IP. Like there are, that's a whole different rabbit hole. Um, yeah. I can, I can talk for another hour just on that. But it's important to understand the difference though. You can have a separate website, that still, but still have it tie into the 20 sided, you know, whether it be an LLC right. or an S corp. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like right now, the way I was sort of envisioning it was that Mira would be my, would be sort of sole proprietor under Studio Blanco. So, yeah. you know, that's my company that I operate under for my personal projects. And then once I create the product, then I would sell it to 20 Sided Store just the same way you sold Epigo yeah. to 20 Sided so Store. 20 Sided Store is an authorized distributor for Studio Blanco. Exactly. You just happen to be our owner of the Exactly. Of the store. <laughs> no, and that's, but that's a perfectly valid way to set it up. But it is important yeah. to understand that so all the stakeholders are, know. In this case, right. proprietorship, that's just you. There's nothing but wrong does, with that. But it does, it does, it is important to separate that out because I do have a partner with the store, yep. which is Luis. He writes, so, you know, how to kind of keep. Yeah, right, because it all comes down to like I think at the end of the day how you're organizing your books. Right? Yeah, and at some point like, it's counting. You don't need a lawyer to write like a little bit of an agreement or a piece of paper saying here's yeah. here's the understanding. It's great to have a lawyer look at it if you have if you have right. those resources. Just a quick note that contracts aren't necessarily there for when things go bad. That sounds. It's also right. when things go right, right? If all of yeah. a sudden some major movie studio comes up and says we like World of Mirror, please. Yeah. Well, that's when people start coming out of the woodwork saying, well, I want a part of that. Yeah, like, yeah. And that's that. where I want to, I want to be ready for that. You know, that's yeah. like one of my biggest questions and concerns is sort of like, you know, I, once I start, like, I feel like I'm right. I, I've got a lot of these kind of projects all sort of like about to go live, the, the events and this and that and the other thing. And I feel like the more I get it out into the public, the more attraction there's going to be. And that's where I'm going to start to get those offers. And I don't want to say I'm not ready yet. I want to be yeah. able to be like, yes, I figured it all out we can sit down in this meeting and have this conversation now. I don't want to be like, I got to get back to you in six months because I got to figure this part of it out, you know? <laughs> yep. No, and, and that's the so. right approach to having. A lot of people don't necessarily start from that place. So mm-hmm. it, it's important too to understand the ownership structure of it too because there are going to be a lot of costs associated with professionally producing work. And again, self-publishing is professional publishing. It, you may be not getting paid pro rates, but it's just as difficult. If anything, it's actually, you. I mean, the, the benefit is you get more of the back end. You get more of right. the profit margin. And you get complete control over the product. There's a reason I've self-published my own books. And Chris and I decided to publish the game ourselves instead of selling it first. And we mm-hmm. made a lot of mistakes along the way on both sides. But yeah. we also learned a hell of a lot to the point where you know I can answer questions like you have today. But right. um, artwork and licensing rights are big deals. Yes. Um, so you're going to want to make sure any contracts you have with actual artists detail what happens with the work. So for, for the Rainy River Bees books, right? I my Jack Para, who is a friend but is also the artist, 
and the interior illustrator for all three of the books in the world, as well as the first book of my Iceless Earth series. He's been the artist I work with on everything, but we have a, we have a contract in place that if it sells beyond the first X number of copies, mm-hmm. then his royalties go up because it's been right. successful. Right. So right, I got right. a good deal early on, but if it does become successful, he's, he benefits as well. And it's exactly the way I, I'm yeah. totally comfortable with that because that's the problem we both want to have, right? Right, yeah, right, I, lose right. My, I make right. less margin, but my work is really popular. Yeah, and I find also, you know, when you bring in other people that way too, they're also, they want to mark, help you market because yeah. they want <laughs> to no, be and, successful too. So that just kind of helps you overall and everything, right? <laughs> no, it does. It does. And, and working with people that you trust is a really big part of it. When it comes specifically to art, one of the questions you had raised, the other, the other way to go mm-hmm. about it is stock images or stock video or movies sure. on this, this yeah. you know. Shutterstock's one of the big players in that. Um, Adobe Stock is a big one. You had to be um, audio for the pod, you know, the podcast yeah. intro I have, right? You had to be really careful and read the fine print there. Yeah, right? I know. So I know. You, it can be very yeah. cheap and affordable. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about art for 50 cards, it's a way more. Don't pay an artist to make 50 cards unless you have like a, a friend that's inv- involved in the project and, you, and you're independently wealthy. <laughs> because no, yeah. it's, I mean, listen, I know, or you want to take five years to make your tarot yeah. deck, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> or no, know where you have to spend the money. Yeah. You may want a professional artist to make your own custom art on the box of the tarot thing, because you know that mm. that's gonna an eye-catching art is gonna sell. I had a bunch of middle-grade yeah. science fiction hockey books. I needed to invest in the cover of the books. Yeah, I knew it needed interior illustrations. Over seventy-five percent of my bu- budget for all three books went into the artwork. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I know. I mean, I've got um, a friend of mine, Kit Malone, is doing the artwork, and he's amazing. And awesome. the tricky part with Mira is that because it's only developed in my mind just so far, and I have a very, you know, I come from, I was a professional photographer before opening up the store, so I kind of also know a little bit about wanting to maintain artist rights for your yep. work and things like that. And, you know, and so I kind of get that, I get it from that end of it. If you're going to use my photography, I'm going to lease it to you for a certain amount of time for a certain amount of publishing rights or whatever. Yep. But so, yeah, so I'm working with a friend of mine to do custom art for the cards. And it's been a really amazing collaborative process because we're, I'm sitting down while he's painting and telling him the stories and he's just bringing them to life. So like, I couldn't ask for a better creative process but it is definitely going to make it so that this first print run I have to crowdsource and pre-sell and there will not be profits on the first thousand copies you know the second print run it'll be profitable but the first the first print run will just break even (laughs) on my costs no, I'm okay but, with that, but I, but yeah, definitely something I've had to come to terms with yeah. with this project. No, and and, and, and listen, not everyone's going to have the advantage of having friends that they had from other realms that came over and have those sort of resources, right? So there mm-hmm. are ways of bootstrapping it. Um, in the episode notes for today's episode, I will have a longer list of sources you can go to find artwork. It's just understanding yeah. what, what you're actually buying from, let's say, Shutterstock or um, a lot of the online music sites for, or if you're doing a YouTube series, right? Yeah. If you're trying to especially for digital distribution, it's understanding that there may be limits where you can't publish this beyond Mm -hmm. a certain number of copies or you can't, it's not meant for professional distribution. It's just for personal use. Yeah. So definitely read the fine print. Fonts too, you know, so like even Google fonts, like sometimes they're open source and they're public, but then that can change. You have to know which ones are like actually for life going to be available for commercial usage and which ones might, 
eventually have a licensing fee on them, well, which is something I just learned about. Yeah, right? and, and remember how a Creative Commons is a great way to validate that yeah. it's okay to use, but you have to give attributions to make sure in your work you give attributions. Yes, and, make and I think a lot of people too. get into that. I see that a lot with people who create Dungeons and Dragons, little zines set in, you know, 5e, because like if you go, you know, to their open source of the rules, they have a like a two-page contract that has to be printed in your material and we've had a lot of indie game designers who've come to us and they're said hey will you sell our book and we're like we can't because you didn't publish the rights pages in the back of your thing like we want to sell this but we will get in trouble if we sell something that you didn't probably print I'm so sorry that you already printed it you know but you got to go back and reprint it <laughs> so. that's a, it's a great point I, I I think I had it a little later in my notes but it's like you're going to want to make sure if you're, if you're coming up with a product, go talk to people that sell those sort of products. Like what is important to you? And, at, and most store owners will take the time to answer some of your basic questions. You know, if you go with a list of, you know, for five hours, like, hey, yeah. I got to actually run a business here. But you should be talking to your friendly local game store or if you're a writer, you want to go into um, independent bookstores and their wealth of knowledge, both what, distribut what distributors they use, who do they trust, who do they not trust, who's doing things, you know, what other creators are doing things in the field that are selling well or are being well critically received. Yeah, those are important questions to ask. And, and a lot of people are nervous to ask the question. So even if, you, even if you're listening to this and ha don't have any resources, you probably have more than you think. Yeah, yeah. But, and also, yeah, because I mean, we get in, you know, just to kind of go on on the, for other people, <laughs> we'll yeah, come yeah. back to me eventually, but... <laughs> Um, but we do get, we do get a, I know you mentioned um, off screen earlier that just about how to price your product. Yes. And that is one of the things that we get most often too, where people just don't really know how to, they factor in their costs and they factor in the price that they want to sell to their customers at the MSRP price, but they don't think about how that's going to look once they decide that they don't want to sell it themselves and they want to put it into distribution or into somebody else's hands. So that breakdown of like how many, what your profit margin really needs to be. <laughs> Even if you're like, well, I don't really need that big of a profit margin for just me. But if you really want your product to succeed and be big, you are not going to be able to sell it at that level by yourself, right? And you are going to have to find a distributor. And so if that, if you didn't price it right, it's going to cause so many complications down the yeah. line. And, and there's a simple, I'm like, think about that before you print, you know, <laughs> and you'll find, you'll find this advice if you dig far enough online, but the, the basics yeah. of it are, let's say you, let's say 20 sided store sells a game for $10. You're probably buying that for distributor for roughly 40 to 60% of MSRP. Yeah, I mean, we want to have 50% or more markup because like 40%, it's like, especially in New York City, like how how are we even staying in business? You know, we've got employees, you know, we've got rent that is really pr at premium prices. You know, maybe yeah. if you are somewhere where minimum wage is really low and you're paying people minimum wage, like we pay all of our staff well above minimum wage because we want to keep them around. Right there, you've got so many costs to think of. And if the majority of the product that you're selling in your store is something that you don't manufacture, right? Something that somebody else manufactures, you have to be getting a 50% or better markup. But a lot of people do squeeze it and go with 40. And for smaller companies or people who are really new, you know, or somebody that we really, really want to support, we'll do 40%, but it's really hard. You know, yeah. we have to really want 
to support that person at, you know, when we take those lower margins. And you're taking the inventory <laughs> risk, right? You're, but yes. let's, let's be charitable here and say 50%. So now now, yeah. now that game is being purchased from a distributor, most likely for $5. Mm -hmm. That right. distributor is also, they're bringing, they're warehousing all of your inventory. They're the ones distributing it. They're dealing with all the purchase orders, the mm -hmm. invoicing. They're chasing down unpaid invoices from, from other stores. Yeah. Um, so let's be exactly. charitable here and let's, and for the sake yeah. of easy math, let's say they take 10%, which would be as, the lowest thing you're going to get, especially right. these days. Yeah. So, so now you're making, now, now it's $4. Then your manufacturer, right? Most creatives are not the ones actually sitting there like with a printing press making right, their own right, book. Right, maybe yeah. some Maybe some small independent RPG makers are, are they having yeah, a letter You're making small print runs, but the second you want to make, you know, uh, a million copies, you're not sitting there hand screening a million copies. Yeah, so, so you're talking... <laughs> 10 to 20% of that right. cost is going to be your, your manufacturer's profit margin. And and you may owe royalties to your artists, to um, your layout team, to mm -hmm. your, um, if you're more, now again, if you're digital first, a lot of these costs go away, which is something to, right. to look at, you know, eBooks. Um, can right. Some things could just be the one-time upfront cost versus yeah. the recurring costs. So, so now, <laughs> so let's just say, again, let's take the manufacturer at 10%, your royalties maybe, or other ancillary costs on the 10%. That's a, there's a dollar left for you that's before you now think about all the other costs that come out of that dollar yeah so you're going to have licensing rights if you shutter stock we mentioned before something yeah. like that software and services you're using to produce the work editing a layout fees which are again usually one-time cost that you can amortize or or spread mm -hmm. out over if you make a thousand copies and you spend a thousand dollars it's a dollar a copy yeah shipping do you need to set up a business for the project? Every state, you know, yeah. if you even LLC. So I live in New Jersey, right? It's yeah. it's about two hundred something dollars a year. Yeah. Um, your website domain, well, ten to fifteen bucks a year, but then you have website hosting, which is mm -hmm. five. I know everything's subscription based now, right? Yeah, exactly. So well, <laughs> they're not which, just one-time fees. You yeah, got listen, a monthly I have, fee I have, or a yearly fee, you know. I have the Adobe Creative Cloud because I yeah. do things both in the graphic design world and the writing, and now the audio mm -hmm. world and mm -hmm. video editing. I get all these great tools and all these great resources, but it's six hundred dollars a year. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and there, and there, are, there are there are cheap free resources that again have there's a pro and a con. You got to be careful what cost you're incurring here, and you can mm -hmm. bootstrap these things. But yeah, promotional materials. You're gonna want. Do you want bookmarks to, for retailers to have out, or, or maybe some promotional stickers? Um, I know with the bees books, I went to carstickers.com, a free plug, mm -hmm. and every every little helmet sticker with the Rainy River Bees logo cost me ten cents. Mm -hmm. I get them made a thousand at a time. Like yeah. That cost ten cents, not a dollar yeah. fifty a sticker. Yeah, and it's nothing, but, but it adds up. And so, yeah. right? So it's like, how can you make sure that you're if you can factor that into your margins from the beginning, then it's gonna help you grow your business, help you know that you've got that room to grow. And so yep. I always say, if this is just a one-off and you're never planning to do this again and you never want to make this game again, this is just gonna be a one-time, you know, small print run, then do whatever you want. But if you actually want this to become a business, then think about the top, the furthest that you think you could go with it and then work your way back. Don't think about where you're at right now, yep. right? And I think that's where a lot of a lot of new game designers kind of fall into that that trap. You know, so many will come all, you know, bright-eyed and like, "I made this thing, will you sell it?" And I was like, "How much is it?" And they're like, "Um, well, and and to be honest, <laughs> how other... much do you want to pay me for?" You're like, "Oh yeah. no." 
So people go, oh, I'll go the online, re- I'll go to the online retailers, right? And, and let's put mm-hmm. aside the fact that it really screws like the brick and mortar stores, who are the ones building communities yeah. around your product. It's a whole different discussion, right? Yeah. Uh, I love working independent all around. I'd love to avoid Amazon. Sometimes you yeah. have to avoid them. The, the, you still need to be on those marketplaces. But listen, if I sell a book at a, at a show, I'm making a yeah. heck of a lot more money than if I'm selling it on yeah. Amazon. Well, and that's um, the thing too. If you sell, if you're a game designer and you sell direct, take that extra money. That's yours. Like you, you know, but you're selling one at a time. When you sell to the distributor or the warehouse, you're selling a pallet load at mm-hmm. a time. And when you're selling to me, you're selling a case at a time. So, you know, you get to, you're, you're get, taking less of a profit margin, but you're, you're selling more quantities at a time. Right. But you're also, and so, Sorry, yeah. No, it's also an important thing from your perspective too. If you someone comes to you and say, Hey, I want to sell your product, and I say, Well, yeah. all right, I'll sell it for twenty five dollars. If you go you're gonna look that product up online. If it's available yes. online for five, ten dollars less, or they've done a big Kickstarter, they've yeah. probably sold most of the copies well, they're gonna sell. Why are you gonna take the inventory risk? Yeah, well that's the thing. Never you never wanna sell your game less than, you know, direct. You never wanna sell it less than what other people just sell it. So that's why you know, and I think now there is, you know, like even restrictions on, they call it map pricing, like how much you can, or an online retailer could discount, you know, a yeah. game for or whatever. But, you know, I always, I always tell game designers, yeah, if you're going to sell to me, I need to be able to sell it at the same price that you're selling it at. So if you're, you're listing it on your website for $12, you know, for an indie RPG scene, then I want to sell it for $12. But if your margins are not, you didn't factor it in that like actually to be able for me to get a 50% markup and for you to get the amount of money that you want on your game, if that game actually needs to be sold at $15 or $20, we all need to raise our price. (laughs) And and you're going to, exactly. And you're going to have to back that up with the marketing to help drive the customers to the stores and to the retailers. Right. Uh, Yeah, because ultimately like we as a retailer, we are we are doing the heavy lifting of the marketing of your game. You know, yes. like our staff is on full time talking about your game, recommending it to people who we think it would be good for. And I think there's a lot of, you know, I talked to um, the creator and founder of Die Hard Dice and he keeps mentioning to me over and over and over again how it wasn't until like years later when he came and visited the store and he saw our display of his product that he really realized how much we do to sell his dice and to promote his dice and to get his dice out into the world. And that kind of changed his whole perspective on dealing with retailers in yep. general. So yeah, just to go go back to your earlier statement, talk to retailers. Yes. Have, you know, <laughs> before even, you print, before you, you manufacture. Even when you're in the, you're start you're, you're you're coming out with your product, understand what a sell sheet looks like, right? It's usually a yes. one pager, eight and a half by eleven. It's got the I'm clipping this and I'm going to put this like on my way. Like seriously, like I don't even think half of the indie game designers that we work with even know what a sell sheet is. So what, I'm, so. what I'll actually do too in the episode notes, I will give people the original sell sheet for Epigo, which is the first board game that uh, Masquerade Games produced, the first major yeah. one, as well as for the Rainy Rubies books. You see what, what difference looks like between them. Mm-hmm. So, and these are actual sell sheets that I gave to a lot of retailers and to distributors to understand what the product was and how you have to market it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause that's crucial. Like we want to know how we can best describe your game to set up those expectations for the people that are buying it. So when we say this game plays like this, and if I've never played that game, I need to be pretty accurate because yeah. I find that my customers, 
they kind of know they know when you haven't played the game yep. you know and if i've demoed it they're kind of like not sure but if i've played it it's just like i don't know some you yeah, just and- talk about it differently and you just know different things about it so the more information or even playthrough videos anything yes, that you can yep. share that can be helpful for um, somebody for us and for the staff to be able to promote your game, the better, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and, and filming a how to play video, how to teach the game videos, right? You don't have to mm-hmm. publicly put that on YouTube. You can have yeah. a private Vimeo link you send to retailers on the sell sheet saying, here's how to promote the game or here's how to sell it. Um, those are really critically important, especially for games. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of production costs that go into that. It's a lot of work. But it's one thing, it's like, you know, I would go into 20 side store on a weekly basis, right? Whether I was playing Magic or just going to see you guys and, and play the, as part of the community. But if you're trying to distribute this on a wider scale, mm-hmm. not everyone's going to be, you know, Lauren Blanco 20 sided that you're friends with. Right. Right. There's, there's, <laughs> there's going to be retailers who have never heard of you, never heard yeah. of, you know, Croyder Studios or 20 sided yeah. store or Bola- Studio Blanco that you need to trust yourself. And so you have to do things the way professionals do them. You have yeah. to have that that, la- that layer of, of business acumen. So you have to find out what the industry does and you have to follow it to a certain extent. You can mm-hmm. think of marketing as, a, a, as the, the quote I love, um, I believe it's to Derek Sivers, but marketing is the final extension of your art. It might be Seth Godin, I don't remember. I'll, I'll post that quote in the episode notes, mm-hmm. but you can be creative within that. You can have fun with it, right? I always try to find ways of sneaking that, that fun in, but at a certain yeah. point, like, if you have a board game, like you have to have a page on board game geek, you have to maintain it. You have to have the, mm-hmm. you have to play videos. You got to have good pictures. Yeah. Well, and there's so many factors that, that go into play. Like you just, everything you said just kind of spurred so many thoughts in my head for people, which is like, you know, one, when you're playtesting your game, sometimes you might have an idea of the, of who you think w- is going to be attracted to your game. But then the more you play with people, you realize you're actually reaching a totally different market yeah. base. And then you want to make sure that your art matches the market that of the people that are going to be interested in your game. Like there's so many, there's this one company that we work with that some, their games are amazing. I love them. They're easy to learn. They're, they're like the perfect games for the type of customers that I have, except the artwork looks like kids artwork and I can't, yeah. we're an adult store. So I just can't sell those games to adults, even though I know that if they actually bought it and played it, it would be the perfect game for them. So it's sort of like the art isn't matching up with the expectation of what might be inside of it. And trust me, a lot of people judge a game by its cover. I've sold so many games that nobody in our store knows anything about. They just walk off the shelf because they look beautiful. (laughs) And and knowing where to make that investment is very important, right? Yeah. They they may have gone with a hand-drawn artwork because it was very cheap or free. It was creative commons, whatever it is. And that's great. But if it doesn't serve the end product, you're you're really shooting yourself in the foot. It's a great example too. Yeah. But let's, I want to just for a second touch on, we touched on it briefly before, but I think it's really important for the audience to understand economies of scale. Yeah. And so I want to take the two extremes. The first is you're going to make things in a quantity of one. So print on demand. The pros are there's no real overhead for, you know, you're not, you're not paying crazy sto- uh, storage costs, shipping costs. Um, the, the problem is the actual cost per unit is very high, right? So you're making less profit margin on it. So when I print my books, I usually try to do it 60, 100 at a time. So I don't have my whole closet full of books. I'm not, it's a cash flow issue too, you know, because I'm not, again, I'm not selling them on a, on a huge scale right now. I'm not doing, you, but you can also do it on a much larger side where you're doing, um, bulk printing, right? You're going to a professional yeah. print house. I'm getting 10,000 copies made. Your cost per copy is going to be a lot less. So you're, you'll get higher profit margins, but you're also then 
talking to distributors. You're getting, you know, they're taking their cuts. You're getting into more stores. Mm-hmm. Um, you have inventory risk. You have cash flow issues, which again, you're going to we'll talk about crowdsourcing in a minute. But maybe you maybe you made it, and a major retailer like Walmart or Target or somebody, not to single anyone out, wants your product in their stores. A lot of those contracts you have to be careful because if they don't sell in six months, they're jamming them right back down your throat. I struggle with this one myself, um, and this is a great topic to segue into for Mira stuff too, because or even just twenty side store products. Like I've designed our own T-shirts, and I've done a bunch of little indie zines that I just you know I don't have ISBNs for, which uh, we got to talk about how to do that. But you yeah. know, a lot of things that like I just kind of would just print. Sometimes some of the earlier adventures that I published myself, I just printed on my own printer and just made print runs. Like so, I did my own print on demand, yeah. and I would just print, run them off on the print. I went and had like really nice covers made, but then the inside I would just print on my regular printer, and I would I got one of those staplers and I would just make 10 at a time and as I sold them I would just make 10 more and it was great you know yeah it's a great way to do um, it yeah and then and then you know with t-shirts and stuff like that you know we went with the local silk screener and we don't our business mostly sells games so we don't really have an apparel section but I really thought it was important to have some you know branded shirts and every once in a while I have the merch artists yeah I have some merch people yeah. always want merch you know but the merch is something that I, you know, definitely have been leaning more towards going print on demand with, even though I want to support Pete's print shop so much. They're amazing silk screeners, by the yep. way. You know, we would be ordering in order to make it cost effective for them to screen everything. We would be getting at least 10 in every size. And then you want to have multiple colors or you yep. want to have multiple designs. So, nice. so and, you know, you start getting hoodie sweatshirts, that stuff doesn't pack down really small. So, you know, yep. half of our storage just becomes bins and bins and bins of backstock of T-shirts and sweatshirts that maybe we sell, you know, a handful a month. Like we're not moving them in the same way that we're selling board games. And when we buy, even when we buy board games from distributors, we're not, we don't have to buy a hundred or 200 at a time. You know, I can buy six at a time or two at a time or even one if I only yep. wanted one you know I mean that's kind of the beauty of working with distribution um, obviously you get you know better deals when you get a case and then yeah and then same thing like so with the tarot deck I'm like well I could go print on demand but then when you start getting into printed paper goods it's really tough for there to be consistency because they're not being printed all at once so there could be color shifts and some of the yeah. things. And so it depends on like how detailed you want that to be, right? So that I'm kind of, I'm struggling with that right now. Like, do I want to make a cheaper print on demand version, but then have like a higher end, like where I'm, you know, maybe have to be a little bit more detailed yeah. if I do like a gold leaf or something where I just, the print cannot be off, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think print on demand, especially in the gaming space is getting a little bit more accepted just because the quality has gotten a lot higher. The tools have a gotten better. Yeah. Um, even when I was, even Masquerade Games was being started, I mean, this is 2008, 2009, like it really mm-hmm. even wasn't, a th- Kickstarter wasn't even a thing. Yeah. So you yeah. kind of had to make it yourself with printers and like, you know, like the, the sticky note mm-hmm. paper, print on yeah. that, stick it on the back of crappy magic cards sure, and that was your yeah. game like that's, that's how you prototype now you can go online and again i'll have a whole list of these resources yeah, for, specifically for for game manufacturers yeah but like the game crafters the one we always use you get a professional looking uh, prototype with very consistent coloring and ink and it's one of the finest companies in the gaming space they have their own distribution yeah. network and everything too 
Um, So that's the one that Masquerade Games has used for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, So for the books, I had this fun little card game, Intergalactic Hockey Showdown, that was really just Mm -hmm. kind of a marketing tool. But I got one booster pack. You can get actual booster packs made for your game that are randomized or a fixed number of cards. It's 15 cards in a pack that are very professionally printed. Yeah. So very is, consistent. Is, is game is game crafter print on demand? Yep. Or but they, oh, they also are? I also they have a store page, so I, you can buy the game right on there, and they will cool. print it, ship it, deal with everything, and I make like a couple cents. It wasn't oh. it wasn't I didn't make the game to make a lot of money. It was just a fun little tie-in. But I'm yeah. reusing the artwork from the cover of the book, and that's so that's awesome. a, it's one of the, the important points here is if you're building a world, you're building a product. Yeah. There may be other things that you can do merch. Uh, mm-hmm. A tie-in game, a tie-in tarot. Even the tarot, all this yeah. art you're doing for the tarot deck, you can reuse that in all your books and manuals if your license allows it. So you can probably get other things that either help to flesh out the world, give your fans more unique things. You can have them as, as giveaways or, or as like bonus tiers for a Kickstarter or a crowdsource. Mm-hmm. So it's good to know where you can reuse some of your own content and have these nice print-on-demand resources where you, maybe you only have to buy five or ten. Yeah, yeah, um, no, the print-on-demand resources are super crucial. And I'm always like, a lot of time, for a lot of these printers, I tried to source like so many different ones for the tarot deck. Like I wanted to see the boxes and I want to see the card quality before, you know, because it's like, if I'm going to make a thousand copies, like I yeah. don't want to spend like so much, like all my savings, yeah, you know, no, it, to create this first printing of a game and then just have it not be right. Exactly. But a lot of times, you know, even when they give you the sample packs, it's still kind of sometimes I feel like hard to know. So it's always great to have a recommendation of somebody who's worked with the company and knows that they're reliable and that you want want my golden rule for self-publishing or any realm, even if you're, even if you're going to, so, so Epigo, right? Chris and I, Mm -hmm. our first initial production run was 2,500 from top German board game manufacturer at the time, which is Ludofact. I don't even know. I don't, I don't know. Ludo fact in Germany, but again, don't. Oh, okay. This is going back to 2008. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. We well, got, I did. I did find a place called Ludo Cards out of yeah. Italy that I was thinking yeah, about working with. So I was like, "Oh, is it the same but company?" Here, so <laughs> let's we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But like, so I've done it on both sides. But my golden yeah. rule is you. Oh, and and any professional printer will do this. They will provide you a sample. They will. Yeah. You're still paying for all of the dyes and fixtures and the printing up front. So you're, you're committing to that run, but they're still going to send you one saying, "Hey, does this look good?" You do the same thing for self-publishing. You always print one copy of the book. It may take longer, self-gratification. It's nice to get that package of the first copy of it. There's going to be problems. Your binding might be a little screwed up, right? You may have, oh, the artwork cut off weird there. I don't really like how the blue came out. Maybe it's a little lighter. Always, always, always. Even for, if you're going to get it professionally published, maybe go to a print-on-demand shop. It's a pain in the butt to change all the files around, but go make yeah. a print-on-demand copy just to see what the product looks like. And guess what? It's a great tool if you're making how-to-play videos, how-to-market videos. You have actual printed products mm-hmm. for those videos that you can then use in your rule book for the final product yeah. or online to sell the product before or, or to use for your Kickstarter yeah. to fund the product. I was going to say, even depending upon the kind of product that you're making too, like if it's a book or cards, a lot of those print on demands are so cheap that you could even just do it for your playtesting, right? Yeah, and then just oh, change sure. it and change I, it and change it. <laughs> I never, never playtest with production quality stuff. But but again, yeah. print on demand now is production quality, right? Yeah, it's crazy. And it's usually within the same country. So let's talk about the Ludo Fact in Germany, right? So we were yeah. the idiots that designed a two-player abstract strategy game before Kickstarter with a box that was 12 and a half inches by 12 and a half inches. 
which is a really bad dimension for shipping. But I like the idea no, that it was not going to have a seam in the middle of the board. We were right? so like... hell-bent on this. And the guy told us, he warned us on five different occasions how stupid this was. But here's the problem. You print 2,500 copies of a game of that size. Yeah. It's 11 pallets. So that's a, a container ship. Like, you know, you know a big container mm -hmm. ship. You see them coming across the seas of thousands and thousands of containers. Each one of those can hold anywhere between 40 to 60 pallets, depending on size and stackability. So we're talking a quarter. I paid for a quarter container shipping. So it's less than containers. Now you're sharing with other companies. So your shipping time goes bananas right off the mm -hmm. start, right? It took us months to get these things. They're coming in some, from some port. In this case, I believe it was Chicago. Then they're getting on either a rail car or a truck. They're going to a distribution center. In this case, it was from Indiana. It barely wow. got there in time for Gen Con, which was when we were having a big debut. We spent four grand yeah. on marketing to go oh. to Gen Con to debut the game. We got there four days before. Oh. So we rented a car to go drive to Fort Wayne, load a car with as many copies we can get from the, from the warehouse, bring it yeah. back to Gen Con. 297 of these games in a car because it was 12 and a half inches by 12 and a half inches. Dumb, but <laughs> we were hell bent on the wrong. We we had our vision. You learned. Well, no, but we were so hell bent on the playability of our game. Yeah. Like we got the top printer. The qual. I mean, this mm -hmm. my copy here is you know it's oh God fourteen years old. It's still it's still in great condition. It's yeah. seen thousands of plays. Right. We did the. We were so bent on that experience, but we didn't think about it from a profitability standpoint. You know, we brought three hundred copies with us. We brought two hundred and seventy back because mm -hmm. because Gen Con wasn't necessarily a sales show. It was a marketing show. So right. we learned a lot of hard economic lessons ahead of time. And, yeah. you know, we were lucky where, you know, it was a side project. It wasn't our main primary source of income. But if you are thinking of it making this a business, you need to think about it from a business standpoint as much as a marketing, right? The better thing to do would have been to not put pieces for four players but for two, have a foldable board. So now your game comes in a small package. You can sell it for $20, not 30 So you're already going to increase your sales that way. You're going to make more profit per game. And now your game is being shipped on three pallets instead of 11. And nowadays, that, that math is really, really challenging. A container from, from overseas, a full container, let's say from most of the board game printers are in China. There are some in Europe. But either way, you're paying about five, you used to be paying about five grand for U.S. to get a container from, from overseas. Right now, that's around eighteen to nineteen thousand dollars. It's yeah, got it's, it's and you're also dealing with currency exchanges. You may have yeah. set a con. You're dealing with that too. You go to Europe right now. Now is a great time to buy from Europe because the euro yeah. versus the dollar it used to be dollar right. fifty. But if you have a if you have a six month production window, that can shift a lot. Right. Right. Well, then, so my other question is right because I know a lot of people they're like they just get it shipped to their house and now they're dealing with all these pallets of games yeah. in, in their you... apartment in New York that's like 500 square feet crazy right clearly you want to make this relationship with the distributor so that those pallets can just be shipped directly to them first right uh, so and your how family. do you do that if your game doesn't even exist yet you know how many there's so many creative people that <laughs> will have a basement full of like failed production and there's nothing wrong like you make some mistakes like I still have cases of Epigo in my basement I'll be the I'll use yeah. myself as an example. But, you know, if you live in rural Montana and have a spare barn, that you right. have no containers problem. full of merch and everything else, great. But you also want to keep it. Sure. Start your own shipping right out yeah. of your own house. No you don't problem. want your kitty cat using it as your, your board games as a litter box, right? You, there are other <laughs> challenges. A professional distributor can also, they're also insured. So if there's a fire, you don't lose your right. entire investment. There are lots of things that go into these conversations and, th and they're not easy. It's not, yeah. none of this is sexy. Right. You, you want to start with the world of mirror. You have this passion. You want to be focusing on the work, but sorry, if you want to run a business, you have to run the business. You can't just do the artwork um, or, you can't, or, the, or the creative output. Now, you can just be the creative type, but that's when you're going to a professional, whether it be a publisher, 
finding an agent. You're going to one of the bigger board game pumps. This is their whole like, – they have an entire yeah. staff to deal with all this. But guess what? Then you're now getting a royalty, a small percentage, and you ha- you're, you're knocking on doors saying, hey, can you, will, you, will you publish my product? Better be damn yeah. good. And I know, I know people who've gone that route. Well, I know people – yeah, so there's yeah. A, a, a couple of game designers that we work with that have done all the different aspects, right? Like we've got one book designer who uses drive through RPG, yep. and they right. actually will order a case – for themselves and then they sell us like you know the 10 copies or whatever um so they kind of do their own they they will order from their own print on demand so yeah, that, do that too. You, can, you can do that too which works that's right a, that's a really great point actually so when my print on demand i'll get about 100 copies like i said i'll have actually i had a bunch of hockey rinks they'll have in their pro shop they'll buy two or three i have them on consignment mm-hmm. next time i'm in there i'll stop by you know like a lot of them are local i can do this but you know what? Like, you don't take any inventory risk. They're still my copies. If you sell them, let me know. I'll come out and bring more. Yeah, and yeah. I, and it does you, take a while. So it you takes know, a while. You, like, but, we have to know that up front when we want to reorder. Where if we run out, we're not going to be able to get them right away. It's going to take yeah. her. She has to place the order on her end, and then it's going to take her a while. So we we've had that conversation with her, and we know that that's how her end of the production works. So we know that if we're down. To five out of the 10, that's when we should kind of place the reorder, you know, kind of planning ahead or just be okay with running and, out. And you know what, though? There's, there, there, and that's a great point. And one of the other benefits of it is if you're doing print on demand, you're not making a huge outlay out front. And so let's say down the line, this, 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 print, this woman comes in and you get some feedback from you and say, hey, like the artwork's just not selling or, you know, the packaging is really tough on this one. You can pivot, right? You say, okay, right. you know what? Let me come up with revision two. Great example, I'll go back to myself here, the Bees books, right? The first edition had a different binding. One or two little typos that weren't a huge deal published a sequel. I went back and said, this is now version two. So mm-hmm. there was, you know, so now they all say book one, <laughs> um, but it talks about being a series. But now you look them on the shelf, they all, they're all the same. They have a cohesive graphical element. I just carried it through the third one. But I didn't have 5,000 sitting in it like, well, I can't do that because i got to sell those first or I'm going to go broke. And so print on demand, you can react more. So if people really aren't digging it, make some tweaks to it. That's one of the – if you're bootstrapping this, that's definitely a much better way to go because you can learn these lessons on the fly without breaking the bank or – don't incur credit card debt over this. Yeah. One. Avoid it too. No, so, don't. Do yeah. not. No. Do not use. A I mean, credit no, card and that's why, like, I'm publishing a lot of the mirror stuff on the website right now because there's so many changes. Like, I yep. changed the name. Like, we had elves, and I was like, well, I don't want to do elves. I want to because they're more human based, and so then they were elders. But then I was like, but then everybody thinks of them as being old. But the idea was that here's a race or a sapient that does live a long life, but they were born at some point, they were under a hundred at some point. So the elder sage is something that would be like when they take their rites of passage when they're, you know, a hundred years old. So what do we call them when they're younger? So I came up with a name called the Safina, you know, so, so the yep. name of just the sapien has changed four times. And I don't want to put that in print yet, you know, because yeah. what if it changes again? What if, you know, what if other things change? So as I'm still world building and still making a lot of these decisions, it is nice to have it published in a way where I can start to share with people and get that feedback and see what's working, what's yep. not working, but I don't feel super committed yet. You know, there, I've gone so many different directions where I was like, I'm going to print these modules that we've been running. Like I've already created four chapters for a whole year of like 16 to 24 different adventures, you know, and they kind of all go in sequential order. And yep. I was like, I'm, you know, they're already basically written. So I was like, well, let's just edit that and then get that published and printed. But because we're changing all, we added all this world stuff, 
we have to go back and change some of the details because we, nothing existed outside of Black Bottom when we wrote those adventures. And now that the whole world exists, yeah. we have the rest of the continent. We have the name of the waterway. We have all these other locations and stuff that we can actually have names too that we can name and describe out in a little bit more detail. So the tarot deck has kind of become the thing that's going to be the first thing that goes out because it's so far, it, the history that's in the lore that's going to be written in that about the world is so far in the past and it's before the great calamity. Yeah. So it's fine if everything after that changes, changes. anyway. <laughs> and, 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 but it's important. So it's, it's two points here, right? And it's good. To, and it's a great example. But keep in mind that when you produce a product, whether it be a book, a module, whatever, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be flaws. There are going to be things you wish you did. But if you let that fear stop you from producing the product, that's how, yeah. we, how we started this, right? You can be in this perpetual I'm world building, I'm world building. I mean, at some point, you got to write the thing. you got to right, produce. Right. you got to ship. And accept its flaws. Like this is this book versus book three. If, again, I, I'm not trying to make it all about me, but like, no. like I'd go back and, I, but I'm not going to go back and rewrite it because that was the first book I wrote in the series and, and it means yeah. a lot to me. Like, you know, there may be opportunities on RPG where you can expand upon the world or you, you know, at some point you might have to do a second mm -hmm. re revision because maybe you, yeah. you screwed up an IP thing. There may be a reason why you have to do it, but don't let it stop you from drawing that line instead of in sand, in cement, mm -hmm. producing some yeah. work. Getting, getting, I mean, getting it out there in the world, and that that can hold people back. Um, I know that my best work is when I've been on a deadline. You know, where like I published this, I self-published a Salton Lake adventure, and it was because it was for an event with Jupiter Disco Bar. So it was like we had two weeks. I had one week essentially to write it. You know, and we had one week to get it printed, and it was just this collaboration, and we were going to run an event. And I was like, this is it was a alcohol company who had a lot of money to throw at it. So I was like, this is a great opportunity for me to get this printed and published, and not just for the event. So people had something to go home with yep. as a take home item that was super unique and original for this event. And so it's like the budget was there. So I was like, I had to make it happen, but I had to write a complete adventure, a whole basically setting and story in like a week. And sure, there's a million typos. We yeah. didn't get copy editing on it. You know, I'm working with a copy editor now to do the print run of it, but you it was out and it's published. And people I think eventually will probably want to have that first print run, yeah. you know, as like a keepsake, because I can tell you right now, working on the second print run, even the layout and design, everything's going to be very different. And we're going to put it into the world of Mira because before it was also just this little lake town that didn't exist anywhere, you know? <laughs> oh, for sure. And, and but that but those constraints could be a deadline too. Like, hey, Gen Con's coming mm -hmm. up, you know, or whatever. In yeah. our case, like that can breed a lot of creativity, right? Chris and I didn't want to be a single game game company. Yeah. So we, we came up with a game and we got, again, we went through professional card mm -hmm. printer. Yeah. And we made it designed, printed, and bagged. Again, we used burlap sacks from a from a yeah. local home creative right. store in three weeks. And it yeah. sold more than the game we spent right. multiple thousands well, of dollars printing and shipping. I'm not going to lie. I literally will, like, create events through the store just to, to give force. myself yep. deadlines to have to get something done by, you know? Yeah, and that's... <laughs> But having a printing deadline and maybe starting, you know, thinking more like a project manager, say, I need to have this done by this date, helps spur the creativity because you know you're on a deadline. And self-imposing yeah. them or going out there in the world saying, I'm going to produce this by February of 2023, you're on the hook now. And accountability yeah. can be a huge driver for both, you know, your own work and your own creativity. And yeah. some people work great under that. I know I do. I like having yeah. a line. Like, I want to get this done by a certain date. Sometimes you have to shift that date for good reasons. But, you're, you know, be honest with yourself. But also go out there, put yourself out there, be accountable, 
Um, mm-hmm. That's really great advice, I think, for bootstrapping yourself because then, you know, the people that you're that are holding you accountable can also help you with resources. You can put out an yeah. APB like, I need an artist fast. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. Like, so, you know, for me, a lot of the things that I've done really fast, it's just like, it's an idea that I had and I just did it and I don't have to answer to anybody and I can just get it out, right? Yeah. The projects that I find really take time or are harder to project manage are the ones where I'm collaborating with a lot of people. You know, you've got the artists that you've got the, and you've got the graphic designers and then you've got to source the printers and you've got copy editors and you know, now you've got a million different people kind of all working on the project simultaneously, and you're trying to make sure that you're in communication with everybody, and everybody has what they need, and I'm good at it, like I, but I know a lot of people aren't, and I don't yeah. think that I'm the best at it, especially so, on my own projects. I feel like I could probably project manage somebody else's project a hundred times better than I could do my own, because, you know, I'm second guessing, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, that's a good idea, too. Should we change the direction, you know? Yeah. <laughs> No, but understand there there may be professional tools for collaboration. Put a few in the episode notes as well. Things like Notion or Trello are very popular doing those sort of oh, yeah. things mm-hmm. um, where you keep the stakeholders involved. You're not sending out emails all the time and right. it can help get everyone on the same page. Very good for attaching things like art, art elements or brainstorming. Not everything has to be digital. There is a certain amount of face-to-face that's great, but sometimes yeah. you're working with people in different, you know, different countries. Yeah, that's really nice because I am like I'll get a text message with, the art and then I have to retext it to somebody else. But if it was just on there and everybody saw it in real time. Yeah, so look at ways of increasing your workflow because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just in communication overload. So right. um, I, I, I have touched on this in, on several episodes of the podcast too and those do this a lot. So telling people about more process specific for those sort of workflows will definitely be coming in future podcasts. But I will provide yeah. some links um, in the episode notes for people. So they have a few things to go off of and and again, for the audience, feel free to ask a specific question and talk about implementation and you know, mm-hmm. be on a future show. Okay, so I just have two really, I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit already, yeah. but one, ISBNs. Like, is yeah. that just, you just go online and you just so order if, one? If you want to light fire to $100, yes, it's a great way to do it. And there, there okay. are reasons why you might want to buy your own ISBN number. Or you, mm-hmm. uh, so ISBN is um, International Standardized Book Number. Uh, it's a thir- okay. now th- it used to be ten digits. Now it's a thirteen digit number that is unique to your book, and you basically buy the rights to it in perpetuity. It's a global number. P- uh, UPC is Universal Product Code. UPCs aren't really important for publishing of games and products. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to be in a supermarket or something like that, then yeah, you want you're going to want just a you know a random a barcode is different, right? And ISBN is not just a barcode, so don't confuse the two. Barcode is just the actual technology of black lines and white lines that represent a number in a digital format. Right. Mm-hmm. A barcode can be this, you know, it could be 50 lines yeah. long as long as the thing that's scanning it knows I'm looking for 50 numbers. A barcode can be automatically generated. You can do funky things with it. Now you have QR codes. You can yeah. get a QR code made for free online. Right. Yeah. Just go to a QR code generator. And all it is is it's the three boxes that oriented the, the phone camera. And, mm-hmm. and it has a certain, depending on how big your QR code, it has a certain amount of information digitally encoded. Yeah. But the ISBN number, the number that's being encoded, is important. Every distributor, every retailer is looking for usually a, either a barcode, an ISBN number, in some cases both. They need to be a, formatted a certain way and need a certain amount of white space around it. So you have to factor it into your cover design or, or your box design. I, I Personally, in my experience, I use someone called Lulu.com, which is probably, I think, the biggest player when it comes to books. They do notebooks. Printed books, pamphlets, magazines, you name it. They're not a mm-hmm. game printed. They don't make cards and sure. things like that. On there, if you make them your distributor, because mm-hmm. it's print on demand, they will give you an ISBN for free. Okay. I haven't paid for any of the ISBNs in any of my five books. 
Now, they're listed as the printer. If I went and tried to do my own print run, I had yeah. to then buy an ISBN number. A lot of the printers will supply that as part of the fee. Like, that's part of, hey, like, all right, we'll, we'll put the ISBN number on it because we're your, we're your printer. Now, yeah, if, you're, yeah. if you're working with a professional um, publishing house, they, they're going to buy them in batches of 100 from the actual source of, you know, the agency. And so uh-huh. the, the, it's a, economies of scale. You buy 100 of them, they're very, very cheap. You, that's what uh, Lulu does. I see. So, they can, so you can just get a ton of ISBN numbers and then just apply them to anything that you want. It's not yes. like this ISBN, once you apply it, then it, it's attached to that so item. It's attached to that but item and that revision of that item. That revision right. of that idea. So yeah. the for me, the example of the bees, the first mm-hmm. the first book, there's two ISBN numbers. There's the first edition, and then there's a second yeah. edition. Right. And it right. Co- so when you buy that number, it encodes it with the publisher, the title. Uh, so the publisher in this case is Lulu, but the title is this, the author yeah. is this, the artist is this. It this is the publication date. These are the number of pages. ISBNs have a lot of different stuff that goes along with that number. And then mm-hmm. there's a central repository with that information. Once you buy the number, like that's locked in. Yeah. You know, think about it like a domain registrar, right? We type in, you know, chriscroyder.com. It knows that like, you have to buy your domain so that the domain registrar knows that, yeah, it's connected to this server and it belongs to this person. So it's the same sort of thing, but just with printed products. You know, there may be times where you also need um, a UPC code. Provide some resources to ISBNs and UPCs and some good summary articles on, on that. Yeah, yeah. Like, why would you want, why would you need both or one versus the other? Or if you were only going to do one, which is the better one to do? ISBN. For for what we're talking about for your products, ISBN is the the bee's knees. So all the major distributors, whether it be Ingram or um, I think Diamond's still around. Mm -hmm. I um, I mean, comic books use them as well. There's lots of distributors out there. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, like for us, when we get products that don't have barcodes, it's, you know, we create our, we generate barcodes for for those products, but yep. it's just for our store, right? Just, so they're not, you can't Google them. Yeah, like, some stores Google. want a UPC code just so that it's standardized, right? They just, there's a lot of nuance there, but yeah. an ISBN number, um, so you need that for ebooks and digital tools as well. Any, any digital mm-hmm. publication yeah. also has to, like, so the ebook version and the printed version will have different ISBNs. Oh, uh, interesting. Right? Okay. An audiobook will have a different ISBN number. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, it's like we get, you know, format so there'll be multiple printings of a board game. And we list them, you know, they've got different ISBNs and that's good because it helps us know that this is a new printing. Well, it's what's so in your inventory do. system. If all of a sudden yeah, another yeah, it goes right into our inventory system. So it's like, oh, did they update it? And sometimes it looks exactly the same. So you don't even know, but sometimes, you know, it, it, there's a drastic difference. So people are looking for the first edition of a game or they're looking yeah. for the second or edition maybe, of a game maybe because they lost- they're not compatible with one another anymore. Yeah. But they had to reprint yeah. it because maybe they lost the rights to an artwork or they had a card in there that was maybe insensitive or something, right? Yeah, or sometimes it just gets bought out. Like there were games that were, you know, first published by Rio Grande Games and now are, you know, Asmodee. So yep. different so publisher, different publishers, you know, different, print, <laughs> yeah. different. So print runs are different. So, right. So, yeah. you know, print on demand. Every time they print it, it's not a new ISBN number. As long as they don't right. change any element of this. Right. The ISBN is still valid. The second I go and change something as a new edition. Yeah. Bingo, bango, new ISBN number. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and I, you said ISBN numbers are like $100 per You can buy them independently. If you buy them in yeah. bulk, I think you buy them in batches of 10. They're a little bit cheaper. But obviously, if you're someone like Lulu or these print-on-demand places, yeah. they're buying them in bulk, so it's pennies yeah. for them. It's part of their value add to the publisher because they're making, you know, again, they get their cut when they print these too. They have their pro- – everyone – Everyone yeah. gets their pound of flesh in your product. So Yeah. But like if I don't know <laughs> if I don't know what I'm gonna be using them for, it doesn't really make any sense for me to buy them in bulk, right? 
or I can decide what I want to use it for later after I've bought now, it. Now, if I'm bu if I'm making five thousand at a time and I want to yeah. I want to retain all rights to all elements of selling my work, then yeah, I'm going to yeah. want to buy my own ISBN. But I'm not independently yeah. wealthy. You know, the joke yeah. in the in the gaming industry is the best way to make a small fortune in, in games mm -hmm. is to start with a large fortune. <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of <laughs> yeah, how it yeah, works. Show me the money. <laughs> um, unless you're doing things like bootstrapping and building your audience over time mm -hmm. and not making some really bad financial decisions like sending 11 pallets of board games. Yeah. Um, and, and listen, along the way, you're going to learn, not just learn a lot of hard lessons, but you're also going to learn how to do this stuff for yourself. Self-publishing has a lot of redeeming qualities that you can port over to your day job too. And I've talked about this in some other episodes that are coming up, but look at this as learning opportunities, not just like all this work I got to do, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's where like, I do feel like, you know, we have the outlet because we have the store and we've got the website and we've already got shipping up and running and we've yeah. kind of already got methods in place to be able to market and sell things, especially that are related to games. But the second I start creating things that are outside of the gaming industry, then, you know, that's where I feel like I want to be. I'm not yep. familiar with so, those but, but, kind but, of You know what? You're doing the right negotiations. thing. You're listing out your assets that you're starting with. You have a yeah. retail space. You have a very strong community. You've got a well thought out world. You're, you've got all these modules have already developed, but you've got some. You've got the distribution channels. You've got the website. You've got the corporate entity set up already that you can take advantage of. Not everyone's going to have the same things, but right. you might be bootstrapping. But also, like you're also a talented graphical artist, or you're you you paint on the side. You may have had paintings that you did when you were younger that are just as relevant. You bring them into the project because you own the rights. Mm -hmm. um, you may be independently wealthy and can throw lots of money at the problem. <laughs> yeah. No, you can hire people to everything we've talked about in this episode. You can hire somebody to do. Right, right, right. right, you, can, right. you can create your own studio your studios yeah not that i'm independently wealthy but like i don't mind investing money and learn the lessons but i'm in a situation where i can i can afford to do that to a certain mm -hmm. extent even then i'm bootstrapping and self-publishing i'm not making i've learned a lot over the years but can make those decisions you, so sit down and list what your assets are and that's both monetary and talent and maybe things you've already done and then find out where the gaps are and either hire right. consultants to help with that or at least giving you a roadmap to follow yeah. Do a lot of online research. You got you got to do the work. Yeah. But knowing yeah. where you don't have to do the work lets you focus in on the stuff that really matters yeah. and also knowing how much time do you have to solve the problem. And yeah. this is project this is getting into the nuance of project management. I, I know we're running a little bit long. No, no, no. no. Oh, but, sorry. Are we going on cuz I have no. one more question that's kind yeah, of, of course, in line of with this. But the the other question I have is just like then right how are you sourcing when you need to outsource, right? Like how how do you, if you've never done something like this before, how do you know where to even start looking? Like so many people come to me, even before I decided to start doing the tarot deck of like, Hey, I'm going to get, so great. This has all been really awesome advice. Now, how do I find a printer? And I was like, I don't even know. Like I haven't done that process. Yep. Right. And then going through it for the tarot deck, it was like so much Google searching, like, and yep. really, and so many asking around of like people that I know that have published games. And really, I felt like it was it was really hard. It was really difficult to find resources there. And then so, and I feel like I, I kind of went through that process, but I feel like it's the same question that I have then when we're, I'm also talking about how do you find, like if, you, like if I wanted to partner with a publisher to lease the yeah. rights to do something with my game, like how would I even start to approach somebody and say, hey, I have this. IP or this world that exists, like, would you be interested in turning it into something? You know what yep. I mean? Like, I don't even know how you would even begin to start that conversation. There's a lot of different roads that'll lead to where you want to be. But the two pieces of advice I would give you, 
is there's a lot of industry groups out there. So for board games and RPGs, there's the Indie Game Alliance, and I'll put a link mm-hmm. in the episode notes, or Board Game Geek, where lots there's so much information on there. And it's free, available online. You know, you can you can sign up, be part of this alliance, and get these resources. And I think right now there's like 17,000 independent studios. Not all of them are active. I know Masquerade mm-hmm. Games has been a member of that for many, many years. Where it'll have those resources available to you, and you can ask those questions. They have forums for game, mm-hmm. look up game designers or self-published writers. A lot of times there'll be a forum instead of just doing regular Google searches and get recommendations. Yeah. Um, the other other thing you can do is you can go into a store that sells the kind of products you're trying to make, whether it be RPGs or things like that. You know, all the major publishers probably aren't going to answer your email if you email and say, hey, who's your printer? Like, we're not going to mm-hmm. tell you, right? No, no, yeah. Like, I'm, but, I'm not, like, but, yeah, but, but, I wasn't necessarily they're, asking they're, for the printer. No, 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 but, more but, so how do you talk to the publisher? <laughs> but ask the owner, hey, are there any in- yeah. independent, like, I'm looking to be an independent self-published writer. Are there mm-hmm. any books from indie, local indie authors that you sell? Uh-huh. And go right. ask yeah, them, yeah. hey, can I talk to that person? Can you connect me with them? Or, right. like, you know, buy their product and send them an email and they will love yeah. to talk about their entire process and they will give you, yeah. here's the printer I use, Don't, avoid them like the plague or they're yeah. great, here's the contact. Right, right, right. So just walk right. in and, and that costs yeah. you nothing but time. Yeah. Uh, or no, unless you buy the, totally... buy the book, right? If someone bought my yeah. book and sent me an email and said, hey, how did you put, I would talk to them for three hours for free. I know, it's true. And almost it's every true. independent author. I talk author, to everybody who asks me questions. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but people love to share. To ask, yeah, people love to talk about true. themselves. I'm, the, I'm sorry to podcast to do just that. But, <laughs> and, and go on, look for podcasts about publishing. Look for YouTube yeah. videos on publishing and li- listen to authors talk about their process and you will just get, like, just take notes. Yeah, right? yeah, no, that's And totally I think that's yeah. it's better because you get more context around it than just doing a Google search. And, right. you, and when you go into that conversation with the printer, you're going to know a lot more about what to ask for, um, yeah. what to avoid, maybe what um, what to make sure you have in your contract with them or your agreement with them. Looking like if you've listened to this podcast this far, thank you. Yeah. But also, you'll you'll have gotten some ideas of what like some pitfalls. And yeah, because so I found kind of like two roads where one is like they list you know just all the prices and everything online, and it's really easy. You just upload your files, and then you just it just spits out an estimate for you and it's like but you don't talk to a human right so there's no like is this really am I ordering the right thing that I mean to be ordering I'm not sure I'm looking at your videos and I think it's right but I'm not really exactly right and then the other extreme that I found is you can only make an appointment with somebody and it's hard to you know know what to ask right so I think your advice is great to just kind of get the vocabulary get the lingo watch a ton of stuff ask a lot of questions before even getting it to that point yeah and that's and that's part of what Chris and part of why I have this podcast is also to answer questions like this put it in a public forum so people have more resources to know what to go to so if there are any follow-up questions like I'm happy to talk more about this in future episodes maybe have you back on we can maybe get some Q&A from people like you know get some feedback and have a second session and this has been awesome thank you so much for joining the podcast today there is going to be an insane amount of episode notes on this so again thank you so much lauren um again yeah. maybe tell people real quick where they can check out 20-sided store in the world of mira yeah yeah so 20sidedstore.com all spelled out uh, we are in brooklyn new york you can find us online you can shop online we ship everywhere in the united states hopefully around the world at some point but not quite yet studio blanco blanco.com it's um b-i-l-a-n-k-o Dot com is where I'm hosting all the World of Mira stuff right now um, and some of my other personal painting and drawing and things like that that you can kind of explore if you really want to know everything there is to know about me. Awesome. Thank you so much <laughs> um, for being on the podcast and I hope we can continue the conversation in your future. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thanks. 
If you feel that Chris dealt with it, I'd appreciate your support of the show by sharing it with someone who might benefit. Ratings on your favorite podcast player are also helpful in growing the audience. Visit chriscroyder.com for free downloadable PDFs with notes and resources from today's episode, sign up for the CDWI mailing list, or to send in your problems or requests for future shows. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-U-T-E-R.com or use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Chris Will Deal With It.